Hello and welcome back to Parenting Unpacked. You're here with Dr. Kristen Summer and Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini. How are you doing today, Siobhan? Hello, I'm well. What are you doing? I am um, tired, actually. Yeah. I just got back from Canberra where I did like a conference networking thing. I was really conscious of my like social depletion, but I've come back really, really tired. Um, mm. But that's okay because I knew that going in. I knew that it was going to happen. That's um, half the battle. It is half the battle and it like structured me mentally to be prepared for it. So I'm just having a little bit of a slow start to the week and that is that is okay. Mm. Well, I mean, particularly we have our, we have a public holiday for the birthday, but the Queen's dead. So that was weird. Yeah, it's, I think it was the, in, in my Google calendar, it's, it's now labeled as the King's birthday. Oh, really? That's confusing. I did hear that it was being, keeping the day and it's being changed to the King's birthday. Ironically, like the Queen's birthday is not in October, it's in April. Yes. Um, so none of it's real. Um, no. I don't believe we should be a, mon- a monarchy. So I'll just drop that bombshell right there. Um. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I did, um, does it has such little impact on us mm, um, in Australia, to be honest. So, although who would be on our money? I don't. Maybe more yeah. native Australian animals. That would be nice. I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. Yeah, more like you know, um, important people from history rather than yeah. the same person over and over again that makes no impact on our lives. Anyway, well, now a new person. Anyway, yeah, yes, in total know, tangent. I had this discussion though with my husband the other day I was like do you reckon that like at the mint it was absolute bedlam when she died because mm. they instantly had to stop making money with her face on it and create a whole new like template for all the money I don't um, think it was bedlam I reckon they have had a plan for like the last 50 years I think all of this stuff is like heavily like orchestrated and structured yeah they were probably just like oh change it over like everything yeah. was already ready to go and they're just like oh they already had money printed like who knows and you have like just backup money that they threw out every month yeah <laughs> anyway so unrelated to the topic of today's <laughs> yeah. episode oh my gosh um so today's episode is all about um or some facets of because it's not it's not that comprehensive um no. uh, all about autism um autistic autism spectrum disorder or really just autism spectrum diagnosis because there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that have challenging feelings around the word disorder which is totally fine and I get it um but yes yeah, Siobhan you did a lot of the research for this episode and well, yes and yeah I mean yeah. I'm, it's a topic I've always been fascinated in my um I when I first learned about it as a kid I was like there was so in primary school there was this kid I can't remember his name but he was very tall and he he had like stereotypical autism and he was really lovely but he also had like intense outbursts and I just remember the whole school particularly the teachers like just trying to manage him and I remember as a kid being like fascinated um and he was just a really nice kid provided he was happy and chill which yeah that makes sense um and I remember having awesome conversations with him and I remember yeah just being really intrigued and then kind of staying on top of it ever since yeah that's really cool so yeah you did a bunch of research on this episode and then when you sent the research to me I was like oh this gives me an idea about like saying what doesn't cause autism and then I ran yeah. down the hall um because I was at work I ran down the hall to like a researcher that does um like work clinically and do research 
uh, with autistic children. And I was like, what's like some of the things that don't cause autism? Um, and then we had a conversation and I was like, you know what? Do you want to come on the podcast today? <laughs> she was like, yeah, sure. So um, we have lots of research and we're going to talk about that stuff first because we didn't get into like the diagnostic stuff with our guest. But we do actually have a guest for you today, our first guest of season two, and that's um, Dr. Jess Painter, um, who has done research on autism for many a year. Um, wow, that sounds like a really old school way of saying that. But anyways, <laughs> um, so yeah, we accidentally got ourselves um, a guest, which you will get to hear all of her brilliance about a little later in the episode. Wonderful. So before, um, as as Kristen said, we didn't get into like the kind of, we, well, sorry, actually we did the opposite. We got straight into it and asked um, just <laughs> yeah. some intense questions about um, all kinds of both politically charged and just interesting topics, yes. um, such as you'll hear about her, her take on ABA, which I thought, um, so that's applied behavioral um, analysis. Thank you, Applied Behavioural Analysis, which <laughs> has a bad rap for lots of mm. good reasons, but she gave a really beautiful answer. I think she was worried that I was trying to trip her out. I wasn't. I was just genuinely interested in her take. Um, mm. And she had, unsurprisingly, a beautiful um, take a on it. Brilliant response, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, we, yeah, we got into the nitty-gritty, so we thought that um, before we hear the interview with Jess that mm. we might um, kind of go over just some general information of the current research around mm -hmm. autism and autism spectrus, spectrum mm -hmm. diagnosis. Yeah. So Jess, so the stats that I have um, are slightly off according to Jess and I think yes. I trust, trust her judgment, but um, <laughs> as of 2021, the CDC reports that about one in 54 people are autistic. So that's, we're looking at about 2%. Jess, um, suggests it's closer to four percent yeah. um which makes complete sense based on her yes. her talking um and there's this kind of at least I've I've heard generally people talking about oh everyone's diagnosed with autism these days there's an epidemic but <laughs> I think epidemic I know oh, right God. but I think much more accurately <clears throat> is that there's growing um kind of a broader awareness, a broader criteria and better mm -hmm. understanding of what would have previously been um, subclinical or underdiagnosed autism. So people Absolutely. like yourself that wouldn't mm -hmm. have been seen as having met the criteria because mm -hmm. you're a girl. Yep. Um, <laughs> for one, like, I mean, yep. that's something we can talk about in an entirely different episode, but it was mm -hmm. drastically underdiagnosed in females and basically considered non-existent, whereas yep. we definitely know that not to be the case anymore. Yes. So originally um, it was a little white boys disorder um, for children who really liked trains and um, <laughs> couldn't control their bodies when they had it meltdown, which is um, true to an extent. But what I have learned over my own uh, research now is that um, the boys were identified because they weren't taught to mask so they were more mm. readily identified because they it was more acceptable for boys and white boys in particular to yes. show deep specific interest to show these more abnormal social behaviors and it They're was safer. trained out of girls and it was trained out of people of my like minority people like people of color because it's mm -hmm. not safe to act like that or it's not becoming of a girl. Um, so there was a mm -hmm. whole bunch of like social norms from these times that was all and embedded like forced socialization. Yeah. And like there's still researchers now that try to tell us that 
autism is a extreme form of male brain and it's just the mm. most disgusting hypothesis and I'm I'm shocked that some people in prevalent institutions still give talks on it I still hear those talks and it's just oh wow and some people it's want very... to die on that hill and it's not okay and I mean it, it, that is <clears throat> accurate in that that is how it was viewed for a long time yeah but because it's a a condition for want of a better word that Mm -hmm. we don't we still don't understand very well um it means that our knowledge is growing and changing which yes as a result you would think it would behoove people to update their information but that's not always something people are very good at doing some people Um, just suck (laughs) yeah so true so do you want to how about we'll go through the diagnostic criteria i'll list them Mm -hmm. um the current which as I said they've changed but we'll we'll work with what the current diagnostic criteria Mm -hmm. are and then you if you want to can share the ways that you experience these as a person with autism sure do you prefer autistic person or person with autism um I don't mind I Mm. kind of um at the moment I like having the the identity of autistic person because it makes me feel like I've finally got something that explains my experience of the world and that I'm not just some crazy person that doesn't feel um, like I, I just feel like I can't hack it. So now I've got yeah. this like new identity that makes me feel validated. Um, but I know a lot of people don't want to be defined by their autism. They're just a person. Um, so they want to be person first. So I think it just depends. Um, but I am sure. chill either way. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I'm glad I checked. Hey crew, Kristen here from the future. Now, luckily I realized very quickly that I said something wrong in yesterday's episode. And if you are familiar with me and my content, you know that I am never afraid to admit when I'm wrong. I'm always learning, I'm a scientist, and that's the number one thing we need to do is to be honest and authentic about our knowledge and where it goes wrong. So let me clarify what I said wrong yesterday about this episode. So I said that autistic people or the community um, of, of autistic people prefer person first language. And that is incorrect. They prefer identity first language, which is aligned with my preference. So I don't know why I was so Uh, disillusioned by it. Actually, I do know why I was so disillusioned by it because a lot of um, disability organizations or autistic organizations that aren't run by autistic people advocate for person-first language. But autistic self-advocates will tell you that identity-first is important. Now, why is identity-first language really important? Because person-first language removes the autism from the person but autism is something that shapes our personhood it shapes our entire perception of the world so to remove it is to downplay our experience of the world it's the same as um when people started using the word differently abled for disabled people of which autistic people are a part of um because differently abled um it kind of continues to oppress disabled people and it minimizes that oppression by saying, you know, it's actually not that bad. You're just differently abled. And it came from a good place because parents were trying to say, you know, my kid isn't that different from you. They just have different abilities. But no, they don't. Their abilities just aren't designed to be catered for in a world of neurotypicals. So here's the thing. These are the terms that the majority, I would say, of the autistic community prefer. 
They like to be called an autistic person, an autist, um, and they don't like being called a person with autism. Um, now, there are other terms that we should avoid using, like Asperger's or Aspie. Um, these two terms are... They have a sordid history because Hans Asperger's, um, who designed the term and the diagnostic criteria um, back during um, the Nazi era, was rooted in eugenics. So it's generally a frowned upon term now. We don't have that diagnostic criteria anymore. But with that said, for the people who were diagnosed with it, it has become part of their identity. So those people tend to hold on to that term as an Asperger's person or an Aspie or a Perg. Um, so kind of the best thing you can do is ask someone what they would like to be called. And this might seem like an inappropriate thing to say, but it's not. I would not mind being told if I walked up to someone, I was like, hey, yeah, I'm autistic. Um, if someone was like, oh, that's really cool. How can I support your needs? Um, and what's your preference? Like, for how I, how I should refer to you. Are you a person with autism or are you an autistic person? And I'll be like, I'm an autistic person. I got a touch of the tism, like, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, it always comes down to personal preference and their identity and their agency. But typically, person with autism, so person first language, is not the way to talk about it as a general rule of thumb. Because being autistic is our identity. It shapes every single part of our world. Now, in addition to this, female autism, not something we should really use because it's actually masked autism. Female autism actually isn't different from male autism or Asperger's, whatever. Um, they are the same. So the um, masked autistics, masked autists, I don't really know the right grammatical term here, um, are the same phenotype as um, the men. We just happen to be minorities um, and society has shaped us in a way throughout our childhood and our adolescence to act a particular way that is seen as different from little white boys who love trains. Uh, and we do get into this a bit more in the episode, so I'll leave it there. Um, and the only other thing that we should avoid saying and what we should say instead is we should avoid high and low functioning because for a great many people, this is really insulting. And for myself personally, I find it really insulting to say, oh, you're a high functioning autistic person um, because that kind of one diminishes my experience of the world. But two, just makes it sound like there's a hierarchy to who's better than somebody else. And that's not true. So instead, we prefer low support needs and high support needs. Now, again, some people have the agency to say, no, I am a low functioning autistic person um, with really high support needs. And that is so totally fine. But as an holistic, a neurotypical, as someone without autism, you can't use those terms or you shouldn't because it's very insulting. But someone who identifies and has the agency to choose what they'd like can do so. So... That's just um, my, my new learning of the week. I am new to this community. I'm trying to understand it. I'm trying to figure out who I am in it. Um, and I am forever learning. And so if I get something wrong, I promise always to come back and correct the record as soon as I've known better, as soon as someone's told me I've done better. Um, I figured this one out for myself. 
um, after I spent, you know, a long period of time ruminating because that's my jam. Um, but anyways, that's what we got this week. I will shoot you back to the episode right now. Um, but so that, so, um, when it comes to an autism diagnosis, there are Mm -hmm. two main spheres where, um, the diagnostic criteria applies. The first is Mm -hmm. social. Mm -hmm. So, um, Oh, hold up. I had a really lovely, here we go. So in, in its most basic form, autism spectrum disorder, Again, that's the, the technical term, but we don't like it, um, is a neurobiological developmental condition that impacts communication, sensory processing, and social interactions. Uh-huh. So there's two spheres, the social and behavioral. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to diagnosis, in the first sphere, the social sphere, you have to have deficits in three areas. You have to have a deficit in social-emotional reciprocity, Mm-hmm. Um, nonverbal communication and um, developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. Mm-hmm. So, with the, with the first one, um, how do you experience deficits in social emotional reciprocity? Deficit <laughs> sounds bad too. I don't love that. I, so I think the thing is, I have been masking for my entire life and I have learned through like trial and error what's bad and what's good. So, mm. now I have to constantly remind myself of what is a, what's the appropriate response, um, to something like what, what should that be? So when I'm talking to one of my friends, I have to go in my head, okay, she likes to interact with me this way. So I'm going to interact back that way. And when Mm. someone like divulges something sad to me, I have to go, okay, what is the appropriate response? I have to think through in like an internal monologue, every single utterance. And if I don't, if I just like rapid fire, um, respond, I almost always get a really strange look from people where they're like, that was not, that was not it. (laughs) So, yeah. So it's like, it's a very intent, that doesn't come naturally, or at least what does come naturally is not well received. Yes. I, I feel very, it feels very, very hard for me to, um, engage in, um, social or emotional like conversation at all like a conversation in general is exhausting but I constantly have to think what should I say what shouldn't I say um and it's very hard for me to just unmask and say what I want to say which I don't know what I want to say I really don't know what I that sounds exhausting I'm pretty tired yeah (laughs) Um, also I'll I'll try desperately to stop myself from quizzing again is not a great word but I'm just so intrigued you can um, quiz and, that's okay oh, no we'll have a five-hour episode Kristen <laughs> this is a good point we've already got, we've got 40 minutes with Jess. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll quiz you in part two three and four <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> okay go um deficits in non-verbal communication specifically for social interaction but I didn't know that I did these um, mm. until I went to the therapist that, um, specializes in adult females with autism, um, mm. who was like, you know, within 15 minutes, you're autistic. Um, so she told me that I have poor eye contact. And since considering it, I now realize that I don't look people in the eye. I look mm. at their forehead. Mm. <laughs> like, I knew this about you already. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, did you know it before I knew it? Yeah. Oh my god! So we can talk about this both off off air. This is an air, you know what I mean? Off whatever Tell recording. Me now. Um, okay, fine. No, so I when you told me you had autism, I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and like not in a bad way. I just I love that. 
Um, I it made complete sense to me. I kind of had suspected already, but of course it's not, wow. well, firstly, it's not particularly relevant. Like yeah. I don't have to be like, oh, by the way. You're autistic. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love that. Um, but yeah, like there were, I, I kind of always thought it, and then there were other things that confirmed it later for me. Yeah. We're not confirmed. I mean, again, it's not relevant to me That's whether amazing. you do or not. Um, it makes no difference to my life. Um, yeah. well, anyway, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. but um, I don't, I can't remember where I was going with that. Yeah. You just, oh, the eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I you noticed aware. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Here <laughs> I was thinking I'm this like excellent masker. I'm a perfect social chameleon. You're just like, mm, no, no, <laughs> you no. that's sorry. I, I don't mean it. that to no, be bad. Awesome. No, I love the fact that you noticed it because then it means that I'm not crazy and making it up and that I'm not just like some person masquerading as an autistic because oh, that is a genuine not. fear I have every Aww. single day and every time I talk about it um, that is that is someone will figure so out one day that's not actually man. autistic. I know. Well, look, it's just, it's my brain and that is okay. I know. But anyway, like, <clears throat> yeah, moving on. <laughs> the other things that I do, um, I apparently use over-exaggerated hair movements and a lot of them. Um, mm. And that might be to make up for the fact that I'm not making great eye contact or talking very well. Um, mm. But more than anything, I feel like I'm performing. So I used to watch TV shows as a kid, look at how they interacted socially and almost not just like emulate it, like get the gist right. Sometimes I would imitate it. Mm. Um, yeah. Which is really common in girls with autism. Like yeah, in females with autism, it's mm-hmm. super, super common for them to pick someone or a, yeah. a group of people <clears throat> and say, okay, that's working. I'm going to do that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly how it feels. I still feel like when I talk to people now, when I look my most socially like acceptable is when I am performing my best. Um, Yeah. Mm. Like I'm masquerading as a neurotypical. (laughs) Wild. I know. Um, Okay. And so the last in the last of the three in the social kind of sphere Mm -hmm. is deficits in developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. (laughs) To all of my previous friendships, I am incredibly sorry. Hopefully this will contextualize my issues. Um, I have a fundamental lack of motivation to seek out and maintain relationships. Like I can only ever fixate on one relationship, which has been tricky, but coming into new motherhood and having a child and a husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a teenager and young adult, um, like juggling that like significant other versus friend, because I really mm-hmm. only had one best friend at a time. Um, was really, really hard. And I would just drop my best friend as soon as I got a partner, which is not abnormal for teenagers. Um, But I just, I still have such low motivation to actually go and see someone. I have no motivation to make more friends despite feeling incredibly lonely and feeling like I need friends. Like I tried to figure out why I couldn't make friends, why I didn't want to for a long time. I just don't have the motivation. It's really exhausting. Even the people that I would consider friends, I don't really like I have to remind myself that I should call them to check in because that's what they like. Um, Mm. And that's exhausting, let alone like organizing a time to see them. Like, yeah, it's, it's incredibly hard for me to motivate myself to work on friendships. I'm very fixated on just one person or in this case at this time in my life, it's two children, which is probably why as a mother, it's kind of burning me out more because it's no longer two children. You mean two people, two people, one husband, you have a secret child. child. I mean, not, not now. I hope, I really fucking hope not. <laughs> I ain't ready for that, man. No, 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 no. Um, okay. Lovely. And then 
of the behavior sphere, there are four types, but you need at least two of them. Mm -hmm. So the four types are stereotypical or repetitive motor movements. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So that can be um, physical with hands using objects or using speech, Mm -hmm. insistence on sameness, adherence to routines or like ritualized patterns of behavior, Mm -hmm. highly restricted fixated interests, which is the one that's kind of most commonly shared. You kind of um, talked about the stereotypical white boy who's obsessed with trains. That's Mm -hmm. the one we see like a hyper focus mm-hmm. um, and then either hyper or hypo. So either very or not at all reactive to sensory input. Mm-hmm. So most often you tend to see hyper reactive mm-hmm. um, being very easily overwhelmed by lights, sounds, mm-hmm. smells. Um, but yeah, so those are the four. Let's yeah. sh- want to share what your, how you I do that experience like these. So with <laughs> stereotyped and repetitive motor movements, um, we actually talked about this with Jess. Um, I actually, a lot of you would already know this. I use fidgets now, but I used to pick the skin on my lips or the skin on my fingernails, or I used to rub my legs. I used to do a lot of physical repetitive movements. There was my one, my mom told me I used to do a lot. I don't remember what it was. Um, but yeah, she told me I used to do one a lot as a child. Um, so yeah, skin picking is a really like damaging one. Um, you'll hear more about that when we talk to Jess. Another one I do that I didn't realize um I did for a long time until recently um is a vocal stim and for a lot of autistic people or people with autism um vocal stims are just like random sounds it's things that feel good in the throat but for me potentially it could be a mask or an alter like an alteration of a earlier stim where I was it found like they it was beaten out of me not physically beaten but you know like convinced not to do um so I sing or hum a lot like constantly if I am at rest if I am walking around a playground with my daughter like I do it all the time I will hum mostly and it's infuriating sometimes because like it'll be like uh nursery rhymes because it's just the song I last heard and I do it (laughs) over and over and over and over again Dr. Um, Knickerbocker has been stuck in my head for like a month. I'm not here for it. Do you I don't sing, sing it. It's just, it, no, head. it's just in my head. I vocally produce it. Yeah. And I don't know. No, no. I think it's a self-regulation strategy, but that's yeah. um, stereotype. That makes sense though. Like in terms of nervous yeah. systems, singing is like neurologically shown to really um, be incredibly calming on the nervous system. <clears throat> that's potentially why I do it. And I probably should feel less shame around doing it. Cause I find I'm really hyper aware of the fact that I do it sometimes. Mm. And then I have to actively stop myself because I'm like, Oh, this is weird. I look like a weird person because no, when I hear you other should... people hum, I'm just like, what the fuck you weirdo. <laughs> uh, so I, I have to just challenge you on that in a few different ways. <laughs> Firstly, who the hell cares? Secondly, I think I do. <laughs> you, well, sure. Sure. Okay. Sorry to, I don't mean to invalidate your experience. No, it's so fine. But you have an awesome voice. Yeah, it's still like, weird though. No, you have like <laughs> one of the most beautiful voices, singing voices I've ever heard. Um, and um, it's lovely. Everyone should be privileged to hear it. So, yeah, so ig- ignore your mean voice. Yeah, I have, so, I have so much social anxiety or social like awareness of like yeah. what is and isn't appropriate that yeah. like, yeah, it's just where my oh, brain goes. <laughs> I No, I get it. I'm just telling you you're wrong. <clears throat> I love the fact that you can be honest with me. I really do. All right. Well, to make this not a two-hour episode, let's keep going. So yes, um, insistence on sameness, inflexible adherence to rules or ritualized patterns of verbal or nonverbal behavior. So I am very rigid about certain tasks and routines um, and it varies based on like my mental health, like where I'm at, how stressed my life is, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, so I can remember being a teenager um, and cooking boiled eggs for breakfast every morning. And like, I had to have boiled eggs or like, I would feel like I'm going to pass out. Um, mm. and I actually have a lot of rigid routines about that. I'm, I'm working on getting rid of those and I've actually gotten rid of a lot of them. But anyways, I would go to put the egg in these. I did. I cooked it the exact same way every day. But if you put a cold egg into hot water, sometimes it cracks mm. and the extreme amount of distress and meltdown I had when it cracked was just insane. Like, mm. and it would happen so frequently. And I would eat this breakfast for years. Like, and I still had to insist on doing it that way every time, despite the fact that it was far more likely to crack. And then <clears throat> when I moved to like a new house um, on a new cooktop, everything just fell apart because it was a different rate of which everything like cooked. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was a mess. Um, and uh, upon reflection, um, I probably don't realize how many like rigid routines and tasks I have. Um, or is it just your normal? Yeah, but like having a child fucks all that up. Like no wonder <laughs> I had such a major meltdown because I couldn't do any of the routines I used to have. Like, and I yeah. couldn't make new routines because my child was so sporadic. Like there was no routine or rhythm to her. Um, mm. So yeah, no wonder I was not very well that first year of motherhood. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Uh, this is like a therapy session for me. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening I'm... to my therapy session. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no doctor-patient confidentiality here. Confidentiality. No. Also, no doctors here. But anyways, oh, I mean, yeah, two, but not the right kind. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake! I'm so sorry for all the swearing today. We're getting unhinged. Oh, I'm getting unhinged. Siobhan is very balanced. Um, no, it's kind of you to suggest that we're getting that way and it aren't always that way. We just live that way. Anyways, so highly restrictive, fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. So um, my special interests, I have realized, tend to be very um, acceptable socially. Um, and I'm very lucky. So my current special interest is social media and parenting, which is good <laughs> because I'm a parent. And I'm also a social media content creator. So that's excellent. Um, those are the things Look that you and your Venn diagrams here. just beautifully. I, I know. Um, so this is a really bizarre one that I was like thinking about recently. As a child, like mm, under 10, I was highly fixated on childbirth and would watch childbirth shows like full frontal childbirth shows constantly or anything with pregnant women newborns and infants like I would I was obsessed and it's such a strange obsession for such a small child to have um and so like I've always had this obsession and I've had this obsession with babies my entire life and I think that's what drove me to my PhD um so probably my work is also my special interest but I don't yeah. know <laughs> again look at you and kicking goals with your Venn diagrams it's well, very clever beautiful Venn diagrams but also is that masking have I chosen I don't know if you can choose special interests or if I've just like no. cajoled my life around them that's probably well, that more accurate well, thing yeah I mean it's working <clears throat> whatever's working it's functional it's fine let's just let's not question it um, <laughs> except for the part where I became a mother and had a complete nervous breakdown because um that ruined every other part of my life um wow well, I mean it does other, for everyone in some yeah no it didn't ruin my life I mean like it really triggered my autistic self um anyway you know what like I mean as I'm sure you <clears throat> would recognize like all oh not to sugarcoat it it was shit obviously <laughs> yes. but like a benefit not 
thank goodness you went through that and aren't you glad no yes. it was very shit and <laughs> something good that has come from it happens to include unmasking and coming yes. to understand yourself better also thank goodness I went through it I'm very glad because look what it's done for me I do think it's brilliant um yes. but anyways um the last one now you don't need to have all four but like look at me I'm lucky, lucky you <laughs> so the last one is hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment so I didn't think I had a lot of sensory um challenges but I really do um I just didn't notice because I try to like form my life around them so I'm really sensitive to smells and any kind of fragrance. I'm really not okay with it. It makes me nauseous. It makes me stressed out. Um, bright lights actually really trigger me as well. Um, I have taken to like hiding inside hoodies and my blankets and it just makes me feel so much better. Um, mm -hmm. I have to choose certain types of clothes, um, which I used to like try to rebel against and like wear the social like norm clothes, which are very uncomfortable and very irritating. Um, my hair, makeup, everything like that would agitate me so extremely and just put me on edge. Um, <clears throat> but another one, another hyperreactivity that I have is actually my internal sensory in, um, mm. input output. I am very aware of my own digestive system and it makes me very, very, very uncomfortable and um, often triggers panic attacks. Mm. So there's that. Um, so I thought I was like sweet on the sensory side, but I don't think I am <laughs> look again those all sound challenging um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, regarding diagnosis so severity is based on how much those impairments affect your life yes. um, they need to have been present since early development mm -hmm. um, whoa sorry that was my door banging closed um and then yes that they require they they needed to clinically and significantly impact your life in some way yeah so for a lot of people with autism they can't work full-time jobs um they can't work normal jobs um I think I without knowing it really put myself into a job that is amenable to my neurotype um mm. because academia is a mecca for the weird and wonderful people of the world full of neurodivergent people so weird and you can be whoever you want to be and no one even bats an eye twice because also a lot of them have social deficits like when I went to my um conferency thing last week I like noticed a few people where I was like oh my god am I acting like socially inappropriately and then I was like wait no they also have social deficits so they're not looking at me and I'm not looking at them and we're all having a fun time and I was just like <laughs> everyone <laughs> I just had these like little T-Rex arms the whole time too, where I was playing with my flip link while talking to people. And it just like, I'm sure if someone like showed me a video of it, it would have looked fucking ridiculous. I um. love that you've described them as T-Rex arms. Cause as soon as you said that, I pictured exactly, <laughs> I know exactly the hands and arms that you're making like, <laughs> exactly. and how you use your hands, because that's when you're like, it's, yeah. I, that's how you would hold your body walking around poster seminars at conferences because I you were would? super interested. Not, not always, not always. Really? Oh my goodness. Yeah, because, because you were super interested and like, anyway. I did not sorry. know this about myself. I really appreciate that you're this observant that you can be like, this is, you've been doing this for a long time. Here I am thinking yeah. I'm letting my weird show. It's always been the, there. The, <laughs> I mean, I've had this conversation with several autistic people who yeah. have had this same exchange where I'm like, oh yeah. And they'd be like, wait, no, no one ever knows. I'm like, oh, but I think I just, <laughs> because I've always been interested in autism and yeah. people who have it, I've always been hyper 
curious about how people interact socially. I love um, that. And so I've, yeah, you're not the first person I've had this interaction yeah. with. And look, you're not the first. But you're person, my most favorite. You're not the first person I've met that is hyper curious about my experience as an autistic person, because mm. um, I don't know if I told you this, but here's a really funny story. So I was at this university um, while I was away and um, like I found the social psych. So I was at a, like a linguistics conference, but I found my way to the social psych somehow and then ended up like going to the pub with them all. And like this really friendly old man, like not that old, like, you know, like mm, maybe 10 years older than Mark. So what's that? Like 50, 60, 50, 60. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Um, he joined our little group. Like he was obviously from the psych department as well. I don't really know these people. Um, but I was like, well, let's just see what happens. Like it could be good networking. Um, and he was so curious. He asked me so many questions and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let like my autistic self fly. And I was just like super honest about my, my experience, how I work, the weird ways that I work, the weird ways my brain works, my childhood experiences. He was just, he was so good at asking questions and he was a clinician mm -hmm. who's spe like specialized in like psychotic disorders or whatever. Um, and so two hours later, we were the last people there. He's like, I'll give you a ride home. Make sure you call me when you come down to Canberra next and we can go out for coffee. Um, and I was like, yeah, cool. What's your surname? Because I only knew his first name. And so he gave me his surname. And then he said, I'm the director of so-and-so. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, the school of psychology. And I was like, <laughs> you are the head of school of psychology. And I spent two hours telling you how fucking weird I am. I was like, you he asked to be fit. He did. I was like, I'm, we're really lucky that I don't want to move to Canberra. Um, cause I would have just talked myself out of a job. And he was like, <laughs> no, I'd hire you in a heartbeat. And I was just like, oh my God, what have I fucking done? Like, that's awesome. Oh, so anyways, that's a really bizarre, but you're not the only curious person. He was a really brilliant person to talk to. I'm sure he's a phenomenal therapist because he was just, so kind and curious and just like mm. so warm anyway really nice. so yeah Bruce if you're listening thanks um I, we had a great conversation that was just the most hilarious story for me to tell <laughs> anyways <laughs> lovely so um I think that kind of so that covers the diagnosis thing yeah um regarding so I kind of said at the top of this intro section um mm -hmm. that there that we don't have a good understanding of what causes it which is true we yes. um basically it's highly genetic it's mm -hmm. sorry it's highly heritable yes um if if a sibling has it they have a 20 percent chance of having another sibling who has it so it's mm -hmm. incredibly heritable the scientists mm -hmm. have identified at least 102 um variants in oh sorry variants in at least 102 yep. genes mm -hmm. so it's not like there's a single gene it's it's a highly complex um condition mm -hmm. there's 53 genes that are um, very like highly connected to autism but again that's that's heaps of genes yes um so yeah so it's complex we don't know a lot about it there are there's some theories that there could be environmental factors but it's likely things that happen during pregnancy and even that isn't very well understood mm -hmm. um, there are likely gut microbiome imbalances which makes sense because we mm -hmm. know that it's a neurological condition and it, in the last 10 years we've learned that a lot of mm -hmm. um lot of our like uh what's the word our not our brain like our <laughs> like, a, like a lot of our neurology is yeah. connected to the gut that there's yeah. um a really strong relationship Mind, gut connection two. or whatever it is correct thank whatever you that's what i'm looking is. for but there's yeah there's a lot of that yeah um but 
And there's some, and we talk about this in the episode with Jess, Mm -hmm. that there's um, differences that can be observed very early on within the first year of life in terms of social attention. So the ways Mm -hmm. that babies um, attend visually to information, Mm -hmm. the ways that they hear social information or just information in general. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it happens very, very early, if not before you're born. In utero. Yeah. And one of the things, actually, one of the things that Jess and I talked about before we went on air um, was that the prevalence of um, very premature, so micro-premie babies between 24 and 26 weeks of autism is 10%, which means one in 10 children born during that time wow. in their study, like at the MARTA or whatever, was later diagnosed with autism. But when you have babies that premie, they're going to have something going on always. Yeah. Um, so yeah. autism, it's just really interesting that um, prematurely prematurity is linked is to that whether so heavily linked yeah and like what which one causes what is a good question mm. um <clears throat> whether it's the being born prematurely because when babies are born that prematurely like their brain is like tissue paper thin and there's bleeds and there's all sorts of crazy things going on mm-hmm. um whether it's that or whether it's something Having about autism the uterine environment yeah yeah, yeah oh yeah of course even environment label yeah who knows so <clears throat> it could be any number of things but I thought that was really interesting that is fascinating. Yeah. Um, sorry, that sounded really ungenuine. No, it is it's genuine. I'm genuinely interested. Siobhan, I think I need to train you on how to mask your inappropriate social behaviors. That seems I fair. I give the appropriate I mean, social responses. See, this is the difference. You 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 mask and uh, think about it and care. I just say what I think yeah. and then. <laughs> oh, I wish oh, I was you. I wish oh, I just no. didn't give a fuck. But fuck, I give. I need to stop swearing though. Like. Anyway, moving on. I support it. Mm. Um, although we could be, so I was about to say we could be de- demonetized. We're not monetized. Easy we are fix. not monetized. There is no monetization. <laughs> we are poor. Well, you know, it's poor. we're poor podcasters, but we're not generally poor. We're middle class people. Sure. Anyways. This is, we're, yeah, super privileged. We, yeah. Um, uh, all of that aside, we, we need to stop talking. I know because we're people choking. actually listen to Jess. <laughs> she had amazing things to say much more eloquently and articulately than we are yes. currently speaking. Yeah. So let's hand on over to the episode to Jess, um, which was recorded just prior to this. So I don't know why this is the intro. It's very confusing. Um, enjoy. <laughs> I am just rambling now. Um, the timeline Jess, is all confused. <laughs> Jess doesn't ramble. Jess is very well-spoken and it's Super brilliant. Well-spoken. So listen to that. We'll catch you after the episode with Jess ends. <laughs> Javon, do you want to start asking questions? I feel like you have more questions than me. I have lots of questions, but just I'm a curious. Um, uh, Okay, well, my first question that I had that I thought of um, asking you was, oh, so actually it's a double barrel question. First one is how long have you been studying autism? Oh, studying is a good question. So I will say I've worked with people on the autism spectrum for actually almost 20 years Um, so I started working with kids in home-based therapy programs uh, literally 20 years ago to get some work experience as an undergrad psych student Um, but in terms of studying uh, my I wanted to do autism for my honours but at that time everyone thought it was way too rare which is Mm. a little bit laughable now I worked Mm. though as basically a teacher's aide for a year off after my honours and then I did my PhD on autism uh, and so that I started in 2006. So what does it make us about 
16 years of studying and research amazing research and practice has basically been in autism yeah so so you've got a nice um uh depth and breadth of experience and knowledge to draw on which is perfect because I had assumed that was the answer but Mm -hmm. um I guess that sets it up perfectly for my actual question which is what are the biggest differences you've seen between how society and academia and research viewed autism 20 years ago versus now okay so that's that's a big question a lot of it, <laughs> it is you can just start with the terminology mm. um, that it was very medically defined and we would you say person first terminology and we've moved more to having much more self-advocacy and autistic voices being heard and a move to things like identity first terminology looking at social models of disability or even just biopsychosocial whereas historically autism was seen as very rare uh, there was initial research was still searching predominantly for genetic uh, factors and looking for a cure. And we've seen a massive change to acknowledging autism as really a part of human experience mm-hmm. and that we should be looking for supports and inclusion to support people to live their best lives rather than um, trying to cure or seeing it as something um, that we shouldn't have, but actually accepting as part of a diversity of neurodiversity, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We also are acknowledging that it's not rare and it's not just little boys and it's not just children and Mm. seeing that autistic people grow up to be autistic adults and that they have children of their own as well and they can be women and they can be a variety of races, for example. And so we've seen a huge shift in our understanding of the diversity of autism as well and also acknowledgement that Uh, It can occur across intellectual abilities and across genders and seeing a move from really that genetics and biological research to more social research and understanding of quality of life and mental health. I mean, we still have a very long way to go, Mm -hmm. uh, but having a shift really from uh, that sort of search for a cure or genetics to actually looking at supporting and Uh, influencing the culture and society as well so that's been a really big shift and also saying that just autism is not rare Mm, that's really interesting and Jess do you work primarily with children or do you do a little bit of adults and children where's your kind of expertise lay on the age range yeah mine is predominantly children so Mm -hmm. I started off working with children who were suspected of having autism or had a high probability of autism so from sort of 18 months to two years of age was where Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of my early work Mm -hmm. Um, of course those children I worked with grew up though and so over time I went from starting work with those young children to working with school-aged children in my PhD. I went back to uh, before school years for my work after my PhD and now still predominantly children and adolescents and uh, young people but of course many parents then go mm-hmm. hang on that was Hi. me as a child oh and I have started dabbling and doing a bit of work with adults as well so while I would say the bulk of my research is sort of school-aged children at present um, I do end up seeing people across the lifespan, particularly because there is such a gap for adults. So mm. until mm. quite recently, the bulk of research and practice was based around children. And I can see there's such a huge need for adults and for parents. Mm-hmm. And so I have started doing a little bit of work on, say, autistic mothers of autistic children, for example. Mm. That's super interesting. So I guess, oh, yeah. sorry, Are you go ahead, Kristen. I was just going to say, like, I think that's a really valid point to what you were talking just before about how it's so much more 
um, prevalent than we previously had thought. And I think like a lot of that is to do with education and understanding and a um, finessing of the diagnostic criteria around it. Um, and like you say, it was previously viewed very medically. And I wonder, like, like you say that we society used to view autism as something that happened to little white boys, but that it was very debilitating. So like Rain Man, the movie Rain Man is very kind of stereotypical of autism. And I wonder like that the reason perhaps that adults who are now only being diagnosed and yourself included, Kristen, that it is this umbrella term and it captures such a diverse experience that are of shared traits, obviously, but that like historically the the, the children who had really debilitating um, experiences grew up to be adults who couldn't function. And so that's the version we have. But as you say, like there's people who have it and have become very successful in their lives and n- managed perfectly well, um, I mean, to differing degrees. Um, but this education and understanding is really kind of helping people learn a lot more about themselves and learning that they can be a more authentic, truer version of themselves now. Mm. So Jess, what do you think is the current uh, prevalence of Mm. autism? I guess it's still probably being diagnosed in children. Mm. Uh, We're getting better at diagnosing children, especially Mm. little girls. So Mm. what's what's the prevalence that you've been seeing lately? So it's a really interesting question because actually Australia does not do very well at tracking prevalence. Um, and this is something that comes up repeatedly when I'm doing some work with um, National Disability Insurance Scheme, with mm-hmm. Medicare, that we don't actually have good data. And of course, if we use our prevalence from links to funding, that inherently is going to bring biases into, for example, who can afford to do a diagnostic assessment mm-hmm. and also the motivations to have diagnosis A versus diagnosis B, where there might be quite a bit of overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we look at the ABS data, which is a few years old now, for example, mm-hmm. we see uh, up to sort of three to four percent prevalence in school-age children, but like one percent for adults, which I think reflects to those uh, priorities for seeking and accessing a diagnosis, because mm-hmm. we know that for children and young people, until quite recently, they were the only ones who could actually get therapy or support. So we see lower prevalence rates in places like rural and remote, where it's like, mm-hmm. well, what's the point of getting a diagnosis if I can't access any supports? Because yeah. there are no providers out here. Well, you know, I may be not even able to see a psychologist or a Mm -hmm. psychiatrist or a medical practitioner to get a diagnosis in the first place. So we do Mm -hmm. see big differences across groups. But um, some of the data that's coming out of uh, Victoria, for example, and following some cohort studies, Mm -hmm. we're seeing prevalence more like about the sort of 4%, which is consistent with what we see internationally in the CDC studies, even Mm -hmm. though they're flawed in different ways again. Yeah. Um, but the short version is we're definitely seeing higher prevalence than uh, historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it seems to be settling around that sort of three, four yeah. percent uh, when we've got large sample sizes, but Australia really needs to invest in better mm-hmm. data collection. Yeah. So four percent is that one in every 25 children? Yeah, we expect one child high. in every classroom. One child in every classroom. That's mm-hmm. incredibly high, but I guess being a low support needs person myself who went through all of schooling with um like slight major social issues but um fine academic uh trajectory I guess that shouldn't surprise me at all um so wow Siobhan do you have any other questions I mean we've got yeah I mean I've got so many I mean there's just so many like I think so we we know and hopefully lots of 
um, through greater education um, of the general public. Lots of our listeners know as well that um, by far and away, autism is a neurobiological um, condition for want of better for for want of a better word. Um, and I know from my own interest in, in just kind of staying on top of the research that there are differences in how babies who are later diagnosed with autism, um, uh, how they respond to auditory tests um, in infancy. And then also um, I didn't get to do the research, which was really mm-hmm. frustrating, but I um, worked in a lab that did some research looking at how um, toddlers who, again, were later diagnosed with autism had different visual tracking paths. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just curious what you could share about um, your own knowledge and research about kind of those mm-hmm. ways that we can see um, that um, autistic people have those differences in whether it's attention or visual information or like those kind of neuro, neurobiological, physiological differences. Yeah. And so from very early infancy, we do actually see differences in social orienting, for example. So being less likely to look at eyes and more likely to look at mouths and social interactions, for example. <clears throat> There's been a number of studies showing Uh, following up what are high probability siblings so we know that if you already have one child on the autism spectrum and you have another child there's about a 20 percent chance that that child will also be on the autism spectrum and even for those who are not they're also more likely to show autism traits even if not the Mm. full uh a number of traits to get a formal diagnosis and so we might call that the broader autism phenotype for example and what we know is that we can detect quite early so Um, some studies as young as say six or 12 months that there are actually differences in social attention and in those behaviors uh, such as uh, pointing, uh, proto-declarative pointing, so pointing to show for example is Mm. less likely to be observed, less likely to respond to one's name, Um, differences in following gaze for example, differences in responding to people and interest in people and sometimes more interest in objects rather than people. So it seems like a different wiring system from early on. But we also know that those differences in social orientation, we can have really a um, cooperative effect here uh, where it becomes bi-directional that if you have a child who's less socially responsive then as a parent you may be more directive for example mm-hmm. now this is in no way to say that parents are causing autism they're certainly not mm-hmm. um, but this is saying that the way that you interact with the world affects how someone interacts back with you mm-hmm. and so in that way we might actually magnify for those who are would acquire social skills no matter what, then it doesn't take a lot of social input to gain them. Mm -hmm. But for those who might show social orientation differences in that early infancy, then they might need, you know, particularly targeted social interactions to support Mm -hmm. and sustain that. And that when you're ignoring social input or you're less responsive to it, you might be less likely to get it. Mm -hmm. So we might actually see some of those differences exacerbated over time. Mm -hmm. So while we have that strong genetic basis, of course, we live in a society and an environment which might shape and influence that trajectory longer term too. Wow. That's really interesting because I guess, so what you're kind of saying is that children that show this propensity to be more um, avoidant mm. of social interaction are the ones that really need more of it, but the mm. parent feels less motivated because they're not really getting the reward of that 
um, yeah. kind of give and take. Yeah, and it may be, yeah, they're not getting reinforced for that. And also there might be the temptation to be more directive, for example. Mm. So if somebody's not responding when you're playing with them, mm -hmm. parents might become more directive, but actually it's more helpful to social development to follow the child's lead. Mm. And so that's why we're seeing some interventions coming out. Like there's one called iBASIS. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, mm -hmm. um, but it's like Andrew Whitehouse's team mm -hmm. looking at can we work on the synchrony between parents and their children to then facilitate yeah. learning of those social interaction skills from a very young age. Mm. And they're finding some really promising findings about supporting um, greater social interaction skills in children who are at higher likelihood of having autism. Yeah. Okay. So here's a good question because we see it. I see it all the time on TikTok. Mm. It's a big trend. Yep. Signs my child was autistic before they were two. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things they share though look like prototypical child behaviors. Mm -hmm. And you see in the comments that parents start spinning out yep. because they're like, oh my God, my child has autism because mm -hmm. they are excited. So they jump up and down or flap their hands a little bit or they mm -hmm. spin and things like that. Mm -hmm. So of these things that we know are indicators mm -hmm. in the first two years of autism, mm -hmm. how many of them can be readily observable in a way that can be communicated in videos on TikTok like that? So here's a really tricky thing. <laughs> is that mm. the most reliable signs in early infancy and toddlerhood are actually the absence of things, mm. not the presence. Yeah. So please don't panic if your child flaps, they jump mm -hmm. up and down, they're excited, they like to do things repetitively. Mm -hmm. Please do not overanalyze that. The repetitive behaviors characteristic of autism actually tend to emerge later in development. Mm -hmm. And there's a theory that that is because it's actually a reaction to interacting in an environment mm -hmm. that's, you know, neurotypical. Yeah. And that those tend to come out later. What are better clues is actually this kind of developmental cascade of not doing things that you would expect to be doing at those ages, mm -hmm. which is much harder to see. Yes. And so particularly if it's your oldest child, you haven't grown around kids, your child doesn't go to childcare, mm. these are kids where it might be missed. You know, at what point is not talking an issue? You know, some mm. kids are genuinely just late to talk. Yeah. So should we be concerned so we know, for example, kids' first words around 12 months? If you're still not talking at 18 months, you know, maybe not panic, but maybe see someone. If they're not talking mm. at two years, there might be something going on. However, doesn't mean it's autism. No. It's not actually, it could also still be nothing. And about 40% yeah. of kids still catch up. Yeah. And so what's tricky about autism is actually this buildup of missing mainly social interaction skills mm. or things like cognitive rigidity. So, you know, parents have often told me like, it's so funny. My child, when they're only six months old, got really upset if I drove a different way. <laughs> it sounds like that might be a familiar one. <laughs> Look, being a mother of a child who is very erratic, I get very upset if I can't do the things I want to do. So exactly. And so rigidity. they're much harder to take videos of, though. And I mean, mm -hmm. many people would, you know, flap or clap their hands. And they are. They're toddler mm. things that they do but it's when it persists past toddlerhood and is greater in intensity or frequency than other kids, mm. that's when they become characteristics, which are often in older kids. Yeah. So what we actually look for, and we can see this in things like the social and communication study by like Josie Barbera, Diana Latrobe has looked at this, is it's actually tracking where there's milestones that are missed and those red flags building up. So, you know, a child who's a little bit late to wave or to point by itself, actually, let's not read too much into it. The tricky part is we need to track over time that, yeah. okay, well, they weren't um, doing gestures and they're not pointing now and they're not talking and now they're 18 months and they're also not doing pretend play. Mm -hmm. And once we start seeing that pattern that we're missing those sort of social communication behaviours that we expect, then we should go, mm, maybe that is a red flag of autism because mm -hmm. they're not developing skills we'd expect them to have. 
And often the biggest markers that I see is where a child isn't talking or where the parents think the child's deaf because they're not responding to their name. Mm, those are that's like a good point. Yeah, that's generally, I think that's the one that I see in every video of like um, early diagnosed um, children with autism is that they don't respond to names. Yeah. It's that and hand, like hand leading, finger leading. Yep, hand leading. So this is where we'll come back to that gesture idea yeah. where the child, instead of using, I guess, what we'd see as more socially sophisticated gestures, so like pointing the coordinated gaze. So I want you to go to the fridge, yeah. mommy, point to the fridge, look at you, yeah. look at the fridge. Or like my son does, look at the TV, goes TV, and then hands me the remote. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, fabulous in my two-year-old. You know, yeah. shameful for me, but, you know, he knows what the TV is. Um <laughs> We might see in a child who goes on to be diagnosed with autism, they hand lead me without eye contact to the mm. fridge or they hand mm. lead me without eye contact to the television, which we don't expect. So we expect from quite young children actually make eye contact. So mm -hmm. you might be familiar with your own children looking up at you and raising their hands, being like, I want you to pick me up and mm -hmm. seeing that quite young. So, you know, around sort of 12 months or even younger, yeah. seeing those sort of early signs of gestures combined with eye contact, yeah. with the eye contact not being there. And that's not mm. to say there's some people on the spectrum who make great eye contact. It doesn't mm. exclude it. Mm -hmm. But if early on we're not seeing that eye contact and we're seeing mm. hand leading, we're not seeing a lot of other communication, we're not mm. seeing gestures. So, you know, you can have a child who can't talk, but they point and they gesture and they mm. can do an I don't know emphatic gesture. Mm -hmm. But if it's just hand leading and no other gestures, I kind of go red flag, let's look into that one. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Do you, you can have another, you can have the next question, Siobhan. <laughs> Thank you. No, I think, uh, I think it's such a perfect idea. I like to share the idea to share that kind of a sentiment that just because your child does one or two of these things doesn't mean it's autism. And I guess mm. the real challenge with children and the developing mind is that all of these things are coming online at their own pace. And yeah. like you say, it's this pattern of behavior that we have to look for rather than like an individual thing. And obviously so many other um, kind of conditions or um, issues can be mislabeled um, as autism. Like I know, for example, um, language it's like a speech language delay or anything or um, kind of language processing disorders are often mislabeled as autism partly for um, diagnosis and funding purposes which you kind of alluded to earlier but then also because they share a lot of the same traits but because like obviously so much of autism is cognitive like cognitive patterns which they we don't have any evidence of that in little ones until they're able to talk and obviously children with autism have um delayed speech so we often aren't aware of what's going on in their head until much later which is obviously why it's diagnosed quite a bit later than some other conditions um but I guess like so with your research what kind of things are you specifically looking at um that's a very broad question so <laughs> sorry I'm just giving I'm you big at? big answers yeah 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 so do you mean for early diagnosis or in general so, what my research is about what's your current uh, research what's my project? current research yeah, exactly okay, what, so are you, what are you I'm doing right now a, I'm currently writing a bunch of grants actually about literacy oh. um and I'm really interested in if we can detect the early predictors of later problems reading with comprehension 
So until quite recently, a lot of the focus has been on challenging behaviours and on autism traits, Mm. and there's been a lot less attention paid to academic skills. Mm. Now, of course, if you have difficulties with communication, that's fundamental to reading for meaning. Yeah. And so then it's not surprising that we see a high proportion of children on the autism spectrum who actually have academic difficulties because their autism characteristics Mm. get in the way of learning the way neurotypical children may learn. Yeah. So if you're having difficulties with understanding the perspectives of a character or following somebody's mm-hmm. joint attention to look at pictures in a book, it might mm-hmm. actually affect the way you learn from uh, before you even start school. And so we know that literacy development starts well before you go to school. So you mm-hmm. read books to your kids, you yeah. point out things, you talk, all these kinds of early activities we might call emergent literacy skills. Mm-hmm. And so I've been doing research to understand um how many children do have reading problems, which is actually 40 to 70% have difficulties reading with comprehension by the time yeah. we get to school. That's all. But can we find out which of which children who've already got a diagnosis, you know, what skills do we need to set them up for school mm. and trying to get some funding at the moment to go, you know, listening comprehension is the ability to, you know, answer questions about mm. discourse or a paragraph you've listened to mm-hmm. and difficulties with that relate to difficulties in reading comprehension mm. and so really unpacking that a bit of going does that relate to your social skills your communication mm. skills your non-verbal thinking mm. and reasoning and going could we actually identify children at risk of academic failure mm. early before they even start school so we can provide supports then and then we could link into things like the home literacy environment shared book reading, mm. looking perspective taking, mm. and all those skills that could be fostered at home in natural environments without mm. adding extra work for what are often very challenged and burdened yeah. families. And mm-hmm. so I've been really interested in how we up skill stakeholders. So mm. doing work with, say, librarians to have autism-friendly story times oh. uh, as a project we've done. Also, I work a lot with um, teachers and other professionals to look at their understanding of autism and how we can actually upskill them to support people to reach their potential mm. rather than going from the child out, going what are the supports around them to yeah. upskill them to provide them you know, supportive environments, considering their sensory needs, considering their learning needs, so that we can actually help them to meet their potential. So yeah, that's kind of a knowledge that's translation so, and literacy are the big ones. The so most. fascinating. Yeah, I had not so- really... Oh, sorry, no. Okay. I was just going to say I hadn't really ever considered that. Like you think of like literacy and and reading and comprehension, mm. like they're they're often when we learn them and when we use them, they're they're based in story, and story mm-hmm. is often based in social context, yep. which is exactly what people with autism struggle with, yeah. um, or it becomes less naturally to them. So like that, it has the capacity to isolate them from so much of what humans do. Yeah, and so when we're thinking now of that shift from you know, mm. trying to look at genetics to going real-world problems, that mm. if you can't read, I mean, reading has been conceptualised as a human right because yeah. you need to be able to read to access and participate in society. If you want mm. to learn, if you want to have a job, if you want mm. to have relationships these days, you mm-hmm. know, can you read the text on uh, mm-hmm. Tinder or whatever your favourite platform is? Yeah. If you can't read, you are isolated from so much absolutely Mm -hmm. and I think I want to pick up on something that you said just before which was that you're working on creating the supports around the child Mm. and this is that shift of moving from changing the child Mm -hmm. to changing the environment because changing Mm -hmm. the child means teaching them how to mask Mm -hmm. and doing a bunch of things that are really exhausting for Mm -hmm. them rather than help they don't I mean I hi I need to go and lie under my desk after this conversation I'm so tired (laughs) um but um changing the environment means that it's 
less exhausting for that autistic person, less mm-hmm. likely to lead to meltdowns and burnouts and starting in childhood is really beautiful. I do have a question about the reading. Mm. Um, how does dialogic reading compare for children with autism? Do they Are they less likely to engage with it because it's even more social input mm. or does it actually help them pass through the um, reading? So dialogic reading, for anyone who doesn't know, is where you ask questions and talk around the book outside of the story, which is something I actually really struggle with. Mm. I can't read outside of the story or if I do, I have to do it with great effort. Well, two things there. Number one, we've written a manual on this and I'd be very helpful to, happy to give you some coaching around dialogic <laughs> reading because we've actually done a study on this. So credit to my colleague, uh, Associate Professor Marlene Westerveld, who's a lead on this. Mm. But we actually did a shared book reading intervention and we call mm. it shared book reading, but it is dialogic reading. You've got the right technical terms there. And we focus on three key elements, which was words, words, words. So taking the time to explain the vocabulary used mm-hmm. in the story. Uh, making it fun being the essential part of looking at fitting with the child's interests so it is engaging for them Mm -hmm. and what's in the story so talking through the story structure so that we actually make salient those things that are actually more abstract that are difficult for children on the spectrum Mm -hmm. and we found that um, we could have the book for example became part of the routine so Mm -hmm. saying you know we've got a new book every Friday and we slow it down and we read the same book every day we really unpack it so we have a chance to actually learn from that And it actually increased diversity of books for some of our families where the children had been very rigid, but they could learn a new routine and it became part Mm. of that. And it actually meant the parents changed their interaction instead of being, and actually we found the same with our librarians. We were coaching them in the dialogic reading strategies too, which I know sounds funny with librarians, but Mm. often parents and professionals might get very goal-oriented of the goal Mm. is to finish a story. Actually, it's not. And read all of the words. Like that's my struggle, but like I guess. I and do it. <laughs> yeah. And so it's actually slowing it down and giving permission. Yeah. That's not the goal. Oh my goodness. And so going, actually, the goal is to make it fun for the child in the first place, mm. which might be. And so we wrote a paper on, you know, what kind of books were preferred, for example. Yeah. And spoiler, they were basically the same. It's just ask the person what they like. Yeah. Take them to the library <laughs> and we're, you know, trying to make the libraries more friendly as well. Mm. Um, talk through, um, go with the child's interests, follow their lead. A lot of those really good parenting practices mm. about being synchronous, following their lead, making sure it's engaged, stop while it's still fun, mm-hmm. um, building it up. And actually we found one of our biggest outcomes was that they just read more and for longer times. Yeah. And the children did increase in their book-specific vocabulary and they did show increased interest over time. We've got some really promising mm. preliminary findings that you know we hope to get funding to do a bit more of this. But mm. actually, yeah, dialogic reading seems to help. And It's something I want to come back to when you mentioned about changing the learning environment, Mm. that a lot of what we're doing is actually just good practice for everyone. That's what I was about to ask Mm. you. Was like, this sounds like a lot of the stuff that I share on on my social media platforms that Sharon shares about like for typical children, Mm. like this is how you raise a happy, healthy, emotionally adjusted child. So this Mm. approach to parenting is good for yeah all children neurodiverse or not is what exactly. you're saying exactly so being in tune mm. with your child following yeah. their interests fostering their skills oh. it is actually just you know good parenting good teaching mm. good therapy mm. and what's tricky mm. is actually taking that step back and go you know it's not something different but sometimes it just looks a little bit different mm. that you know the play might look a little bit different yeah the book you read you know we're not going to read the lovely narrative about you know, this boy in the bus and the whatever. It's like, oh, we're going to start with reading magazines that are factual about tyres, but we're going to build up to narratives. <laughs> and then we're going to look at narratives. Narratives are also really important too. Yeah. But, you know, it might 
we shape it and we have to really get to know mm. the person and fit to their strengths and abilities yeah. rather than going, oh, well, a neurotypical child would like it this way. Mm. Then you take a step mm. back and go, actually, what does this child want and what yeah. would best fit their needs? But it is mm. still what is good practice for, say, the whole classroom, the whole library. Yeah, because I think with neurotypical children, we make assumptions for them too. Neurotypical mm-hmm. children are going to like what I like, and that's to read the Graffalo from cover to cover. Excellent. And then we'll like to have also the social skills themselves to go through it. This will make mommy happy, so I'll go with it. Yes. Whereas a child with autism may not have the same motivation. <laughs> and go, I don't like it, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I love that. And so, you know, so basically that's what like we see all toddlers. Yeah. All toddlers are like that. <laughs> all toddlers. Like, really, you know, I would really like to watch Bluey all day, mm-hmm. according to my toddler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we've got 10 minutes left. Um, Siobhan, I will let you have the next question. Thank you. You're very kind. Um, I This is probably a big one that I'm super keen, and hopefully I can condense it into a, a succinct question, but that isn't too broad. But <laughs> but basically, so we t- you touched on it a little bit earlier about how um just like training children to mask or behave in specific ways doesn't um serve them particularly if the goal is to help them um engage in more kind of social fluency um I assume you're talking more about the kind of the ABA techniques that um were very common in kind of the 90s and 2000s um and that you kind of talked about other methods that are showing more promising techniques and I just was wondering if you wanted to like briefly describe the two and why oh, one I, method might be a bit more problematic than the other well it's a, it's quite a leading question and it's going to open it me is. up for some hate mail but here no. goes I'll have it anyway um I am not anti-ABA I'm going to start with that so yes, I yeah. want to start with defining terms here that mm-hmm. applied behavior analysis actually refers to a scientific approach and so it doesn't refer to any single practice. Mm. Often when people say to anti-ABA or they raise the concerns about ABA, what they're actually talking about is something called discrete trial training. Mm. And that's usually where it's fixated on a specific goal, often directed by uh, a therapist or a parent deciding, and then training to pass that, which the issue is that doesn't generalise and the goal may not be something that's socially appropriate or it may even be one that's harmful. So, for example, mm. teaching compliance can be incredibly dangerous mm. because we all need the important life skill of the right and the ability to say no. Mm. And all children, for example, deserve to be children. Yeah. And so we do get a lot of very fair uh, negative criticism of uh, what would have been the old-fashioned approach to ABA, such mm. as 40 hours a week of table-based training in specific Oof. skills, mm. which as I'm describing it, obviously we can see the issues here of that mm-hmm. if it's not individualised to the child and family's mm-hmm. roles, preferences and values and setting them up to have skills to keep them safe and happy into the mm-hmm. future, that's a huge problem. Now, that's a huge problem if that occurs for any therapy, yeah. whatever brand that might be. You yeah. know, we could have similar critiques about CBT being cognitive yeah. behavior mm-hmm. therapy being invalidating, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here and say, mm-hmm. if we take this as this is a scientific study of applied study of human behavior. Yeah. And we can use what's been drawn from that to actually match to meaningful goals of how do we achieve those meaningful goals for the person that are in tune with the person and that listen to the person. Now, I would say that is a guideline for any therapeutic approach. Mm -hmm. The other guideline is that people are well-trained, that they're knowledgeable and know what they're doing. We have a huge issue in Australia that ABA is not regulated. So anyone can say, hey, I'm a behavior therapist Mm -hmm. and it's not a regulated term. Mm. So there are dodgy practices and I have no doubt of the stories of people who have experienced 
PTSD or other negative outcomes, which we also hear from a range of other therapies if they're done by unqualified, inexperienced practitioners who are driven by their own agendas. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge problem in the autism space in general, that there is mm-hmm. a lot of snake oil. Mm-hmm. And so when looking for therapies and supports, they should be number one child-centered and achieving mm-hmm. the goals and aspirations of that child and that family. Mm-hmm. And that they are seeking to not normalize the child because we know straight up it doesn't work and it causes harm that we don't Mm -hmm. want to make anyone less autistic for example Mm -hmm. what we want is how can we understand for that person what their own goals are Mm -hmm. and where they can't speak for themselves can their family speak for them can we use picture cards can we Mm -hmm. use other goal setting strategies who are achieving their goals and can we do it in a way that is respecting their right to be a child and to childhood for example which Mm -hmm. often we're talking about aba we're talking about childhood but we may be talking lifespan because aba you know is used is the underscoring for a behavior support plan for many diet plans mm-hmm. and so on and so if we take it back to though being client-centered meshing with suitably qualified professionals mm-hmm. and that meeting the goals and aspirations of the person in a way that you would do with any other person autistic or not mm-hmm. then i don't have concerns there but that's where it falls down And so we should be looking for therapies that start with identifying what the goals are for the person and don't jump straight to, this is what you're going to do in my therapy. Yeah. There should be an evidence base for that. The science shows that it's likely to be effective at large groups and it's tailored to the specific individual and is not just following a pre-written curriculum, for example, Mm -hmm. which may not fit the person. And that there's regular checks that therapy is progressing and utmost important that we are monitoring carefully for any unexpected effects, negative effects or harm, and that we should be immediately ceasing our interventions then and Mm. ensuring that we're meeting the goals of the person and we're making their life better. Yeah, that Um, is probably the best answer. It was a beautiful answer and probably the best um, clarification I've ever heard um, Mm -hmm. about like the ABA critiques and what's really the misinformation that kind of goes around in the autism um, community in the circles and then autistic actually autistic on TikTok and all that kind of stuff that's that really clarifies it really really well um, I do want to bring in what's a probably a really good example of um, different needs to keep different people safe mm-hmm. um, and where um, some of the more punitive methods might be more desirable based on the family mm-hmm. um, because one of the books I've been reading lately is Dr. Devon Price's Unmasking Autism and mm-hmm. she talked they sorry they talk about um, the like minority groups like mm-hmm. African-Americans mm-hmm. Um, needing to suppress or mask some of their more outward behaviors so that they aren't at extreme risk Mm. of being arrested or shot or something Mm. like that because stimming in public on the street Mm. as a fully grown black man or even Mm -hmm. as a um, there's been a number of deaths and yeah even as a teenager that's it might be the lesser of two evils because that family wants to keep their child safe and that's a really awful example but I Mm. think that is a good one of why there needs to be a variety of therapies yeah and why it needs to be tailored it's an awful example i think Mm. looking at we live in a society and culture making sure the goals are fitting with the goal for that family that child Mm. and i want to keep myself safe yeah then how do we safely let you express yourself in a way that unfortunately i have heard of many of the examples in the u.s that you can do that that you're not going to be in 
physical danger. And again, it's coming back yeah. to the what's that person's goals. Mm-hmm. I haven't decided that goal. And we want to at the same time work at raising awareness. And I've mm-hmm. got colleagues here who are actually working with the police, for example. Oh, wow. Um, so we do want to still make the world a better place yeah. long term. But in the short term, what do you do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And the examples <clears throat> I've had working with children is where sometimes the self-stimulatory behaviors are actually causing them physical harm. Yes. So mm-hmm. where we want to, they might be doing have a very high pain threshold, for example, repetitive yeah. scratching, for example. Yeah. And how do we um, um, no, no, that's sorry. I'm putting to my lips. Yes, sorry, I just you do it. Jess. Yes, I pull my skin off my lips. That is a harmful behavior because yeah. I make myself bleed. Yeah, like, and that's probably something I should. Hence the fidget I'm playing with. And that's right fine. Now. And so then yeah. we might look at what are replacement behaviors that serve the same mm. function. So we're not yeah. saying you're not going to stim. Yeah, but we're saying that how can we do that in a way that doesn't physically harm you? That mm-hmm. you're happy with it, still yeah. meets your needs. Yeah. Rather than the old-fashioned way would have been trying mm-hmm. to get rid of that, which would have then inevitably oh. come out in another way that might have mm-hmm. been more. Oh, that would have been awful if someone had like made me stop that and like not giving me somewhere yeah. else to do it because I would have just because it's self-regulation ability yes. it's like oh, so it's yeah it cause you distress and yeah. then it might do something else so again yeah. if you see this the difference there that the person we might go how do we suppress those stims in public but maybe can we work and brainstorm one that you like doing yeah. that doesn't put you at risk you know is it tapping your feet in front mm. of, in your shoe mm-hmm. is it you know you get to play in a particular area of your house you mm. set a time <clears> that you're allowed to do it that you get to engage in that rather than mm. extinction or getting rid of it mm. and so then working with the person of going like you mm. need this, mm-hmm. but how can we get that need met in a way yeah. that's not going to harm you or harm someone else or put you at risk? Absolutely. I think the one that I ended up doing for my entire life as an mm-hmm. inadvertent mask was um, vocal stimming, singing. I mm. hum constantly <laughs> as a self-regulation technique at rest. It's just what I do. That's what I do. And I mean, when I'm, and it's not appropriate for me to just pull the skin off my lips in public, that's what I do. Mm. Um, mm. But I don't, it's not as quite as satisfying as pulling skin off my lips but anyways it's it's uh, very satisfying to the listener you have a beautiful voice <laughs> lovely oh it's just a bit weird when she does it constantly but anyway um <laughs> but it's also recognizing that everyone stems and yeah, neurotypical yeah. people does. just do it in a way that's often been more socially mm. acceptable because they're the majority and mm-hmm. uh, but it's around meeting the person's goals you know if that yeah. works for you awesome we don't, that's not a therapy goal. And that's yeah. where therapy has changed over time. Whatever yeah. brand of therapy we talk about yeah. of acknowledging that actually it's not up to me to decide your goals. Yeah. And that's been the big shift. Yeah. That's beautiful. And just that's all we have the time for, but that was an absolutely brilliant discussion. Thank you for coming on at the very last minute when I dragged you oh, out of your cool. office. Very happy. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much. Siobhan, any parting words? Thank you, Jess. No, it was wonderful. So glad to be able to pick, pick your brain. Thanks for having me, Siobhan. Nice to meet you. Amazing. All right. See you, Jess. You just heard the wonderful Dr. Jess Painter talk to us all about autism. And this is no doubt the first of many um, episodes all about it because it's fascinating, interesting. And of course, we're no doubt all super interested to hear Kristen's like personal experience of diagnosis and life experience, etc. Yes, I'm also tell us, aren't you? I am also curious to hear about it because there's a lot of things I haven't learned yet. And I think I use this as a way to process and talk through these things and figure out more about myself. And that's really fun um, because I don't know why I'm doing it on a public platform, but here I am. That's just who I am. Why anyway. not? And yeah. So we are currently talking really fast and choking and waffling on our words because um, we don't pay for Zoom. So we use the free version, <laughs> which means we have 40 minutes to record this in. And it's currently one minute and 49 seconds left. So uh, with that being said, Siobhan, do you have any important messages to part to say goodbye? Um, everyone be happy, love life. No, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Yeah. 
Me neither. We're joking. Our brains are not here, but we gave you a brilliant episode with a guest, um, which we don't usually get our shit together enough to be organized to do. So I'm proud to of us. To be fair, we didn't. Everything just worked beautifully. This is just, this is just. We didn't get our shit together. It just all fell in our lap. I just need to find more people that I can drag into my office to record a podcast with. Um, but anyways, that's beside the point. Um, a few parting things. Um just because this is the autism episode and it's very important that you know this, things that autism is not mm. caused by is refrigerator mm-hmm. mothers. So cold and unemotional mothers do not cause autism. Mm-hmm. Vaccines categorically do not cause autism. There and are more studies to demonstrate they don't than, than the other way around. They I know definitely don't. Stupid. Anyways, and formula. Formula does not cause autism, nor <laughs> a shorter or cho- choice not to breastfeed. There is a bunch of other <laughs> things there, but we're not going to go through them right now because um, we ran out of time. So if you really want to hear about that, let us know. Yes. Anyways, that's it. Have a good bye one. Bye. Have a wonderful time. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs>